1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. <coughs> Excuse me. But Jonathan, Saul's son, had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore, he put out, out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Curse be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Well, they struck among the Philistines that day, from Michmash to Aijalon, but the people were very weary. Skip down to verse 38. So Saul said, Draw here, near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die, but not one of all the people answered him Father I pray that you would give us revelation as we study this passage as we look at this war story involving Saul and Jonathan as we consider Father this first king of Israel some of the problems in his understanding of his place, his role, his position and we consider Lord his son may we consider even more so your son Jesus Christ be our teacher this morning, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2 says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Don't rush into it, in other words. Which is exactly what King Saul had done. He made a rash oath. Back in verse 24, he said, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. A little background. Understand what's going on here. Saul's son Jonathan has just taken out another Philistine garrison here in chapter 14. It's the second one that we know in the scriptures that Jonathan has taken out. He just went out with his armor bearer on his own, kind of a rogue mission. And he wiped out this garrison of the Philistines, causing the whole camp of the Philistines to quake in fear. They don't know where the hits are coming from, where the strike is coming from, but they're afraid. And so they begin to quake, the Bible says, and coincidentally, a real earthquake hits. Now I say coincidentally, tongue-in-cheek, the Bible doesn't tell us literally that God caused the earthquake to happen, but there was an earthquake, and I think it was the Lord. Joining in with Jonathan, causing fear to spread among the Philistines. So now they're running in every direction, in confusion. They're frightened, they're freaked out, they don't know what's going on. And Saul has a great opportunity here. His son has laid the groundwork. All Saul has to do is raise the army and pursue them with all their strength and might. And he could have, I believe, on that day, wiped out the Philistines. This might have been the day when the Philistines ceased to live in the land. But instead, 
he uses the situation to gain political capital. He decides to bolster his authority, assert his power over his people, rather than embrace the opportunity Jonathan has brought about by his courageous exploits. He makes the issue about him instead of about going after the enemy. Why would Saul do this? A couple of things you might consider. One is just to reestablish his own credibility. For at this point, Saul is not looking real good in front of the people. In fact, Saul never really looked good. Maybe barring the very first time he was introduced to the people and he stood head and shoulders above anybody else, and they went, oh, he looks kind of kingly. But after that, it was downhill. Every experience people had had with Saul so far, not real good. In fact, the last thing the people had seen was Samuel rebuking Saul for offering a sacrifice that was not his to offer. Remember, kings were not supposed to do the work of the priests. And you can read that story back in chapter 13. Saul impatiently goes to Gilgal. Samuel doesn't show up, and so Saul takes the matter on himself, rashly once again to offer sacrifice in violation of the law and in impatience. So he may be trying to reestablish his credibility with the people. I'm in charge. I'm the boss here. You've got to do what I say. He may also be trying to do something else. And that is to repudiate his son's popularity. For Jonathan at this time is growing very popular among the people. He's now wiped out two garrisons. He's a military hero and he's looking good. And Jonathan, by the way, has the right heart. He's doing it for the people of Israel. If you look back uh, in chapter 14, verse 12, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel, he said. Not into our hands, not into my hands, but into the hands of Israel. His heart is right. He's fighting for the people. He's a popular guy. The bottom line in all this is that Saul is protecting his pride. Wednesday night we talked about this a bit. Protecting your pride is hard work. Protecting your pride is an exhausting thing to do. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. But their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. The psalmist is saying pride is actually a pretty ridiculous thing because it can't do you any good. It can't lengthen your days. It's just hard work in the process. If you're a proud person, Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Why is that? Because you're putting all your energy and strength into the pride to the point that you're not paying attention to what's really going on around you. Pride is exhausting. You know what I mean. We've all been there trying to keep up appearances and trying to make sure you've got all your T's crossed and your I's dotted and and everything looks good to everybody else while inside you're afraid, you're scared to death. They're going to know. They're going to find out I don't have it all together. Which is why every now and then I remind you all, I don't have it all together. (laughs) Because I don't like that stress. I don't like being in that place of people looking at me, looking at my life and thinking, "Well, well, well, Rick's got it together. No, I don't. No more than you do. We all struggle with this thing. But gang, pride is exhausting hard work. Trying to hide my frailties and and, and, and manage the approval of man. That's why I love so much the words of Paul in Galatians 1 verse 10. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It It ain't about pleasing men. It's not about making men look at you and think well of you. It's about pleasing the Lord. If if that happens to cause men to be pleased as well, great. Sometimes it will. Other times it will not. 
But pride is Saul's problem. How do we know this? Again, verse 24 says that he, he cursed the people who would eat food before evening. But listen to what he says. He says, until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Oh, okay, Saul. So now the Philistines are your personal enemies. No longer are they the personal enemies or the enemies of Israel. No longer are they enemies of God. Enemies to the land. They are now Saul's enemies. Because it's all about you, Saul. Captain, you plan it. That's what it's about. It's just a Saul issue. Saul's thinking is twisted now around his pride to where he's even perceiving the world about him wrongly, differently. So he says, we're not going to stop. We're not going to have a coffee break. We're not going to grab a donut. We're not going to even eat a power bar until our enemy is wiped out, until my enemy, he says, is defeated. And that's a religious mindset. It's a religious mindset to place heavy burdens on other people until your enemy is defeated. This is what some churches will do. This is what some leaders will do, some other Christians will do. Until my enemy is defeated, you don't eat. You just fight on. Yes, you're weary, but you fight on anyway. I'm reading a book right now, I just actually just finished it, called um, Out of Mormonism. Written by a woman who, she and her husband were drawn into the Mormon faith and, and ended up spending seven years of their life as Mormons. And so they finally got out. And through that process, she talked about how she was so weary, there was always something else she had to do. And she worked so hard, and no matter how hard she worked to keep the church happy and, and to fulfill her obligations to the church, she just never felt like she was quite good enough, never felt like she could get there. Let me tell you, here at the bridge, your goodness, your righteousness comes from Jesus and His grace, not from what you do here. Not from how you serve. Oh, we're, we're called to serve. But from the joy of our hearts, not out of some sense of obligation, we've got to build a church here, or Pastor Rick is going to be ticked off. Who cares what Pastor Rick thinks? Aside from, you know, my wife and kids, they should care. But you don't have to so much. It's a religious mindset that places heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people to achieve a job, to get the job done. Matthew 23, verse 4. Jesus said, The scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders while they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And they do so so that all their deeds will be noticed by men. That's what prideful religion does. It puts weight on the people, makes it heavy, makes it burdensome, asserting authority that probably isn't there in the first place to be noticed by men. It's self-seeking, self-honoring, rule-imposing, and it's spiritually exhausting. And that's what Saul's doing to the people. He's exhausting them. He is making them weary so they will fight his battle. So they'll protect his pride. Well, verse 25 tells us that all the people of the land entered the forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Jonathan hadn't heard the oath his father had put the people under. And therefore, he went, put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. And one of the people said to him, Your father said, Don't do that. He put us under an oath not to eat. Verse 28, Jonathan said, My father has, or 29, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. He goes on to say, How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. 
The end of verse 31 says, The people were very weary. Listen, if the church is making you weary, if you're involved with a religious mindset that's got you tired, then something's not right. Because that's not how it works. Religion is wearisome. Religion is tiring. That kind of mindset is exhausting. But that's not what the church is here for. And that's not what we're called to. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, Come to me if you're tired. I'm going to make you more tired, but we're going to get it done. We're going to work the program, people. He says, Come to me if you're weary. Maybe you've been involved with that. Maybe you've been in a place where all of your hard work and efforts just never were quite enough. There was always more that you had to do. I I worked there. I worked at a couple of those churches where it was just never enough. And Jesus keeps calling to us, Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. If you're weary, I'll give you rest. Jonathan hadn't gotten the memo. So he's out there running along. He sees the flow of honey in the forest. He scoops it up and he takes it. And if you're here Wednesday night or if you read the email I sent out on Thursday, you know there's a great parallel passage to this and it's Psalm 19. It tells us, in essence, that the word is sweeter than honey. Sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119 verse 103. The psalmist writes, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In Jeremiah 15:16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. So just a reminder, a very practical thing you can do if you're battling your way through the day. Maybe you're just having a hard day at work, but you're working your way through the day and you're trying to get it done and you're just feeling weary and exhausted. Would you give yourself five minutes and scoop a little honey? Have your Bible nearby, pull it out and read a psalm. And then go back to work and your eyes will brighten and your day will be a little less wearisome if you will just tune your ears to hear his voice. But here's where the plot thickens. At the end of the day, the Philistines were not wiped out. They chased them down, not being able to eat any food. So the Israelites were not as strong as they might have been. And the Philistines are not wiped out. In verse 36, Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. He's still driving. He's still pushing. So the priest said, Can we pray? That's my paraphrase there. He says, let us draw near to God here. Poor priest, he's just trying to do his job. And Saul wants to drive through the night. And the priest says, can we check that with God? That's just, that's my vote. Would that be all right with you, Saul? And so it tells us Saul said, shall I go down? He inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Silence. Saul approaches the Lord, goes through the priest, actually does it the right way, and there is no answer from God whatsoever. Something's missing. Something's not working. God is not answering. And in Saul's twisted pride, he still doesn't get that he's the problem. He begins to blame the people. He assumes that someone sinned by violating his oath not to eat. He assumes there's a problem in the camp. There's sin in the camp. And watch the Lord bring this to the surface. Verse 38, Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of the people 
answered him. Even if it's Jonathan who did wrong here, he's going to die for this. And then verse 40 tells us he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son on the other side. So they divide up. The people said, Okay, do what seems good to you, Saul. And therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. So they cast lots now, and the lots fall on this side as opposed to that side. And this side is Saul and Jonathan. They're standing there, and the lot falls there. And and by the way, I think Saul knew all along that it was Jonathan. I think he'd been tipped off. I think that's the whole reason why he says, Even if it's Jonathan, my son, he'll die for this. I think that's why he divided all of Israel with he and his son to make it real clear who between the two of them was the righteous and who was the failure, who was the sinner. So the lot does fall to Saul and Jonathan and the people are cleared. And then Saul said in verse 42, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. I think it's very interesting because they are casting lots. It's a roll of the dice to see who it is that's sinned here. And God is letting Saul play this out. He's giving him just enough rope to hang himself with. He's allowing him to walk this situation out. And Jonathan is standing there in verse 43. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted of a little of the honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Watch this. Here I am. I must die. Now there are some translations that get that wrong. The New International Version gets it wrong. That's one. They translate that, here I am, must I die? But that's not the implication of the words. That's not the phraseology there in the Hebrew. Here I am, I must die, Jonathan said. I'm the one, I'm guilty, I'm the guilty party. I violated your oath, and due to your oath, or based on your oath, I must die. I want you to understand that this is a primary key of Christ-like living. It's a primary key. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. The word rescued there is literally ransomed. So they may even have paid some kind of price or penalty, but the people stood in the gap and interceded for Jonathan, and he did not die. Verse 46 tells us, So Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. It's a primary key to Christ-like living. And it's a simple point this morning. A humble heart always overcomes a prideful heart. You can put it this way, a humble spirit, a person with a humble spirit always overcomes the person with the prideful spirit. The pride is all over Saul in this story. And yet Jonathan, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try and tell Saul how stupid he was for making this whole, what a ridiculous thing to do. Who do you think you are, Dad? I know you think you're the king, but you're messing things up. You're not ruling well. He doesn't say any of that. He just stands in humility. He accepts the blame. It shouldn't be his because he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't even know about the law, the rule. He was completely unaware. But a humble spirit always overcomes a prideful heart. And what we see happening is as Jonathan accepts the sentence, unjust, foolish, rash, unfair as it was, 
It breaks Saul's pride. There's something in that last verse, verse 46, that Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. What does that mean? He gave up. In that day, when the people stood up for Jonathan, Saul went, whatever, and went home. And his pride was broken. He was stopped in his madness. This is the model that Jesus displayed for us in the world. The humble spirit overcoming the prideful heart. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was that death deserved? Absolutely not. The most innocent man in the history of the world took the blame completely humbled himself even to the point Paul says of death on a cross for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name and listen it's not that Jesus needed lifting up he's Jesus God in the flesh Emmanuel God come to be with us he didn't need lifting up but God worked with that he would be lifted up as a model to us that we might understand it's through humility that we come to the Lord it's with a humble heart then that a person is lifted up, is exalted. I want you to turn to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles. In verse 24. And listen from Jesus' own mouth. This is a, a few verses that are probably familiar to many of you. But pay close attention to what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a phrase that we bandy about way too lightly as Christians. Take up your cross and follow me. It would be like me saying, you know, getting home this afternoon, I broke another string during worship. It's my cross to bear. It just is. I mean, how many strings, Barb, how many strings have I broken during worship just in the last five months? I wasn't even playing hard this morning. I was just playing and playing off goes the string. I hate that. But it's not my cross to bear. It's a string that broke. People will say, oh, I've got a struggle with allergies, but it's my cross to bear. No, it's not. It's allergies. It's a runny nose. It is not a cross. Well, I work with some real jerks. They're my cross to bear. No, they're not. I struggle with arthritis or illness or even cancer, and that's my cross to bear. No, it is not. Well, how can you say that, Rick? Because the world deals with all the same problems. Secular guitarists break their strings. Non-Christian people have allergies. People die of cancer who do not know the Lord. This is, this is life, gang. This is just living. You suffer from depression? So do non-Christian people. It's living. It's the world in which we are. Yes, we can be attacked. But understand, we, we really simplify this whole idea of carrying a cross when we attach it to something that anybody can deal with. Jesus says, you deny yourself, follow me, you take up your cross. And in his day, people would enter and exit Jerusalem on the Roman roads looking at Jews hung on crosses. They understood a little more about what it meant to bear your cross. They would see the procession through town. Jesus eventually would lead that procession with a cross on his back. 
But at this point, he's talking to his disciples. He's saying, it's, it's taken up your cross. You know what I mean. You've been there in Jerusalem when you've seen that poor, pitiful, wretched man dragging his cross through the street, half dead already, and then hung up. That's what I'm talking about. That's discipleship. That's what it means to follow me. Take up your cross. Now, if we had been sitting there on that day at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus made that comment, said those words, we would have gone, you've got to be kidding. I wonder if Peter leaned over to John and said, is he inviting us to die? Is he saying that this whole walk that we're on is going to end up in death and bloodshed and indeed for every apostle, with the possible exception of John, it did. Everyone martyred. And John could have, should have been martyred. You know that story, if you've heard any of the old history, the tradition states that, that John was, they boiled him in a vat of oil and he didn't die. That's taken up a cross. They crucified Peter upside down. That's taking up a cross. They ran James through with a sword. That's taking up a cross. Thomas apparently was beaten to death. That's taking up a cross and following Jesus. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, he says, deny yourself. Are you willing to be oppressed like me? Are you willing to be oppressed like I was oppressed to accept it, even joyfully? One of the strange verses in Scripture, Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Wow. He looked at the cross. As he spoke these words, he knew he was going to the cross. And for the joy set before him, he endured it. Scorning its shame, and it sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and the Hebrew writer says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you're receiving hostility, anger in your life, if you lost a job because of Jesus... If you have been cut off from family because of Jesus, you might have some understanding of what it truly means to take up your cross and follow Him. This is what Jesus talks about. Taking up my cross, it's identifying with Jesus. It's embracing His humble shame, His suffering, His rejection. It's even being willing to embrace Jesus' death. Verse 25, He goes on and says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Not protect it. Not invest to make it secure. Not build houses and barns and, and, and larger capacity to store our stuff. He says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is the irony of eternity. The more I live for me, the more life I lose. The more I die to myself, the more I truly live. And it's not just an eternal picture game, it's a now picture. The more I'm able just to hand it over to God, to give it up, to say, I'm not going to struggle and strive for this anymore, the better I live. Oh, maybe not materially. I mean, don't think if you give up everything to God that He's just going to flow and give you tons and things. He might. He might bless you greatly. But you might give up everything for the Lord and continue not to have much. I'll tell you what you will have, though. You'll have a joy that passes all understanding. You will have a great peace. He says, give it up. Let it go. And you will live now and forever. Cling to it. 
build it around you. Try to protect yourself with... I used to think in ministry... Because of the first church I believe I was at, I, I think this is where I kind of got this thinking, because we, we were on a shoestring, what I was being paid and how much budget we had and everything. When I got to a larger church where there was a lot of budget and there were actually people working for me and I was in a bigger position, I, I used to think, well, at least if something goes wrong here at the church, there are several levels of, of pay that have to go away before mine does. Selfish? I felt safe. I felt like I had some padding between me and losing my job. As long as I did my job well, you know, worked hard, I had some security there. I encourage you to think about what your security is. And say, are you willing just to hand that over to Jesus and say, I will lose my life now that it might be saved. Christian gang doesn't worry about saving other than saving other people. The Christian doesn't worry about saving your own life or even specifically, a Christian doesn't worry about saving face. Jesus is radically, radically calling us to lose everything that we might win. So even when it comes to the issue of our pride, so what if someone thinks you're a little off? So what if someone blames you for something that wasn't your fault? Take the blame. Jesus did. He goes on in verse 26. He says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can build up your protection, your safety in this life now, but we're talking eternity, Jesus says. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's the deal. He's coming. And Jesus says, that's all that matters. I'm coming back. That's the focus of your lives. That's my intention. That's my plan. That's where we're headed here. That is gang planning for the future. That's a great retirement plan right there. Jesus is coming. And he calls his disciples, his followers, to live to that. And then in verse 28 he says something interesting. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, that's interesting because Jesus hasn't come in his kingdom yet, has he? There are some who believe that this is talking about Peter, James, and John who will in the very next chapter see Jesus transfigured in his glory. So it may be that very, very thing that he's alluding to. These three are going to come up the mountain with him and they're going to see him just in this amazing bright whiteness talking to Elijah and Moses and it's going to blow them away. I think it's probably talking more specifically about John who will later in that revelationary vision see the coming of the Son of Man. He literally sees Jesus' return. Revelation 19, an amazing, amazing chapter in the Bible where John is privileged through that vision to be lifted up to the heavens and to see the heavens opened and then eventually to watch Jesus come riding out on a white horse leading a multitude as he comes back to earth to establish his kingdom and when Jesus says, some of you will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, John was an old man, probably somewhere in his 90s, but he had that revelation and he saw the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He saw the whole thing. Which I think is really cool. But I, I read this verse because some of us, gang, some of us have some great hope here, here today. I, I hope that it's all of us. I hope that every single one of us can, can say that some of us will not taste death until we see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. 
And if I die before he comes, well, okay, then I get to go before you, which is great. But if I'm alive, this, this is the great hope of my life, that I will be alive at the coming of the Son of Man, that I'll see it happen. That in that instant, in that twinkling of an eye, as Paul says, boom, we'll be there. And we'll just be caught up. Partially because the whole idea of death, you know, doesn't really appeal to me. But I'm willing to. I just got to thinking about this whole thing this week. Jonathan saying, here I am. I must die. That one phrase, here I am. I must die. It wasn't your fault, Jonathan. Here I am. I must die. But but, but you're not to blame. Here I am. I must die. Jonathan got it right. Son of the King understood the right heart. I I was listening last week to AM 570, the commentators. Any guys ever listen to the commentators, Shram and Carlson? And uh, they're on in the mornings, and I, when I'm driving back and forth between places, sometimes I'll, I'll turn that on. And they were discussing the political power that is now wielded by the Christian right. They are talking about the fact that, that the religious right now has the power in this next uh, uh, election cycle, literally to make or break the whole Republican side of things, because there are a lot of Christians who are saying, there's not, an, there's not a guy out there that we would vote for. And if a large group, and some are pointing to James Dobson and saying if he backs out and says we're not going to vote for the Republican nomination or whatever, and that that begins to break down, guess who gets elected president? The Democratic candidate, whoever that is, because it will split the vote. We've seen it happen before. So they're they're having this big conversation about it, about what's going to happen, and and about the Christian right specifically, and SRAM... Shram talks to this guy. This guy called in and is talking about this. And Shram made this question. He said, I don't mean to be offensive, but what makes you Christians so different than the Taliban? And I'm going, my cell phone? Can I talk to this guy? I'm veering off the road. You know, I can't even believe What makes us different? I'll tell you what makes us different, you jerk. What really makes us... Well, that doesn't make us different to call you a jerk. But what is it that makes us so different than the Taliban? And every time I hear this, people talk about, you know, Muslims and, and Christians. And why, why do you think that you're so different? And some of you have heard me say, it all ties back to the founder of our faith. We want to talk about a difference. You look at Jesus and then you look at Muhammad. And I'll tell you, there's your difference. Muhammad, who was a bloodthirsty warrior, who, who spread his religion through brutality and murder and carnage. And Jesus, who was the carnage. Muhammad, who said, kill the infidel. And Jesus, who died for the infidel. There's your difference. Have we as Christians always lived out that difference? No, we don't have a great track record. Our sin nature has bubbled to the top over and over and over through the years, but our founder is the difference, Jesus Christ. And what was it that Jesus taught us? Take up your cross daily, he said. You wake up in the morning and you determine, I will take up my cross today. Well, what if someone else is in the wrong? Here I am, I must die. Here I am, I must die. Jonathan understood something that his father did not when he said, Here I am, I must die. Jonathan understood he needed to let the king be the king. Even though in his case, the king was wrong. He still submitted himself to the king 
and said, let the king be the king. This is what he pronounced. This is the curse. This is the oath that my father took. Therefore, here I am. I must die. Now the problem there was with the king. It was Saul, who was arrogant and prideful and creating a mess for Israel. Not so with us. We can say, let the king be the king with complete peace. Let the king be the king. Here I am. I must die. Let the king be the king. How do I truly humble myself? This is tricky, gang, because when we think about humbling ourselves, we can head right into that false humility, that, that, that source of pride. Someone says you're humble and you go, well, thank you. Appreciate that. You know, been working hard at it, so. You know, even trying to be humble. And it does, it confuses me sometimes. I think, how do I humble myself? Here's how you do it. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You let the king be the king. And you don't stand for yourself. You just stand for him. You don't protect your health, your, yourself. You just speak his name. You let the king be the king. Even dying to self, gang, is not for yourself. Dying to self is for the sake of the king. As Paul wrote, and listen to these words, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Here I am, I must die. Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. More of Jesus, less of me. That's how you walk humbly before your God. More of Jesus, less of me. Let's pray. And Jesus, this is our prayer this morning. More of you, less of us. Here we are, Lord. We must die. We must die to ourselves, die to our desires and our our needs. Our hunger for pride, Father, would you replace it with a hunger and thirst for righteousness for your name's sake. Here we are. We, We must die. And Jesus, we submit ourselves to you, our lives on your altar, and we ask that you will take charge and take control. And whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not this morning, I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin to you. And I pronounce this day again, Lord, I pronounce you as the Lord of my life, the King. I want you to be my king. I want to let the king be the king. And so fill me so full of you, Jesus, that there's nothing left of me. As Paul said, Father, we pray, Christ in me, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.